And welcome to WPKN's alternative election coverage of these critical 2022 elections. My name is uh, Richard Hill. I'm here with Scott Harris and Bob Johnson, both co-producers of tonight's program, along with Asia Hussein, who is on a Zoom link in Studio One, and our intern, Emma Primes, who will be tracking election returns throughout the night so that we can bring you strategically timed updates. But our mission tonight is not to engage in the second-by-second horse race game obsessively played by the mainstream media. You know, Scott and Bob, Emma and all, it boggles the mind to consider that nearly every cable news program has devoted every hour of airtime in the past two weeks to juggling, crunching, regurgitating numbers and predictions in spite of the past unreliability of the polls and the recently exposed corruption of this year's polling data with the grossly exaggerated Republican support promulgated by right-wing polling outlets. So, as has been our practice in the past 11 election cycles, going back all the way to 2000, the year 2000 and possibly before, tonight we plan to delve into some of the critical issues at stake in this election, issues that will continue to have tremendous impact on our lives, our country, and the world. And to name a few, threats to our democracy, climate change, the war on women's reproductive rights, the economy, health care racial and economic justice, the struggle of low-wage workers to form unions, U.S. foreign policy, and the emergence of openly fascist movements in this country and abroad. So we have a whole raft, a whole lineup of guests to explore these topics, journalists, scholars, activists, and policy analysts whose voices are seldom, if ever, heard in the corporate media. So we suggest that you turn down the volume on your TV and stay tuned to WPKN so that you can hear in-depth discussion and analysis while you watch the numbers pile up on the screen. So I'd like to turn now to Scott Harris. And Scott, what are, you, uh, what are your thoughts on what's at stake in this election? Well, uh, after months of campaign ads, rallies, candidate speeches, polls, and get out the vote phone calls and home visits, the door knocking that goes on. The 2022 midterm election ends today. And I think we're, many of us are thankful for that. Not quite sure where this election is going to go. But it's often said that this election today, that democracy itself is at risk because today most Republican Party politicians have endorsed Donald Trump's big lie falsely charging that the 2020 presidential election was stolen and that Joe Biden is not the nation's legitimately elected president. That lie in combination with dangerous conspiracy theories from QAnon and other extremist right-wing and white supremacist groups led to Trump's multi-pronged plot to overturn the election with fake electors, attempts to pressure secretaries of state to rig state election results with phony ballots, And, of course, that culminated in the violent insurrection at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th that killed five people and injured hundreds of Capitol Police officers. And I think that's the elephant in the room, because whoever wins today's critical election campaigns and whichever party controls the House and Senate and legislatures, governorships and secretary of state offices, offices around the country, the U.S. will continue to have a fascism problem. You can see that readily by looking at armed uh, thugs, masked armed thugs, 
uh, patrolling uh, ballot drop boxes in places like Arizona. We do have a problem, and I know uh, this station, myself and other commentators here at WPKN and around the country will focus on that problem like never before, regardless of today's results. Indeed. And uh, we have to be ready to uh, hit the ground running, I think, after this election. You know, I've been listening to some of the interviews conducted by NPR and others with voters either about to vote or having just voted in exit polls. And it's interesting to hear the range of rationalizations for why people are voting against their better interests, in my opinion, voting Republican. And it almost seems like there's some kind of magical thinking going on because Republicans have done nothing but criticize the Democrats in, in this election. And they have presented no solutions or policy as an antidote to the things that they're complaining about, such as inflation and the, all the ingredients of that, rising fuel prices and food prices, etc. And they really have not come up with a counter. This, I'm talking about the Republican line here, does not counter the Democratic accusation that the Republicans are undermining our democracy. So the Republicans who are voting, Republican voters who are voting Republican, are doing so, I think, with a sort of sense that somehow or another, Republicans are going to do these things magically. <laughs> if we vote Republican, the economy will get better. If we vote Republican, inflation will come down. And yet, we know that from past experience that Republicans intend to raise taxes. And they're also thinking about, according to some of the political lights that are running in this election, to begin to whittle away at or even cancel programs such as Social Security and Medicare. So it's just interesting to me that, again, I think there's some magical thinking going on. Yeah, the idea that you can uh, uh, lodge a protest vote against high gas prices and inflation and somehow that's going to, uh, you know, right the ship is uh, strange thinking to me. But the problem is, I, I think our media is at fault for not focusing on some of the larger issues of democracy that are at stake in this election. You know, gas prices and inflation are transitory. If you lose your democracy, that potentially could be a permanent condition that would change this country for many years to come and affect future generations. I think the priorities of our news media in covering inflation and gas prices over some of these other major issues like democracy is real malpractice of journalism. Well, we are just about ready for our first guest, uh, that being Sam Rosenthal of Roots Action, which can be found on the net at rootsaction.org. Uh, we're going to go to some music, get Sam on the phone, and we'll continue from there. So stay tuned. This is WPCAN's alternative election coverage, 89.5 FM and streaming online at WPKN.org. <laughs>
and you're tuned to WPCAN's uh, 2022 midterm election coverage. Thanks for tuning in. And we're about to uh, engage in conversation with our first guest this evening, and that's Sam Rosenthal. Sam is uh, the political director with Roots Action and an organizer and researcher based in Washington, D.C. He previously served as the political director with Our Revolution and was in elected leadership with the Central Brooklyn Democratic Socialists of America. Sam, thanks so much for joining us on election night. Thanks for having me. So briefly, just say a word, if you would, about Roots Action and the work you do there, if you would. Sure. So Roots Action is a uh, nonprofit that focuses on particularly progressive foreign policy as well as domestic issues. Um, So some of the campaigns we've worked on in the past are on uh, nuclear nonproliferation, uh, encouraging our elected officials here to lead with diplomacy and not with war and uh, international conflicts. And also more recently, we've worked on uh, clamoring for student debt relief, uh, partially successful with uh, President Biden's executive order earlier this year. Um, and we've also been working on growing grassroots organizations around the country, particularly in uh, Buffalo, New York, where our comrade and uh, member of staff, India Walton, is leading the effort there. Thanks for that, Sam. So I'm joined tonight and co-hosting our election coverage by Richard Hill and Bob Johnson and Emma Primes. And we're very, as well as uh, Asia Hussein, we're really trying to drill down on some of the major issues that are at play in this election rather than the horse race. But in talking about this election, I wonder if you would just first address whatever the results of tonight's uh, key races, which will you know determine control of Congress. What what are the major challenges that you see ahead for progressive grassroots and electoral politics? in the face of a Republican Party that is hell-bent on uh, suppressing the vote of the people they don't like or subverting election results, intimidation and voter purges, all the tricks, all the dirty tricks that they use uh, and have used in recent elections to try and skew the results to their side. What are the challenges um, that you're getting ready for? Yeah, I think as you say, you know, efforts at disenfranchisement have really ramped up in recent years. Um, we saw, you know, today in Pennsylvania that due to a uh, Republican court challenge, there were a bunch of um, mail-in ballots that had been disqualified. And so folks had to go back to their polling places to vote, which I'm sure resulted in some attrition. So there are lost votes, particularly around the Philadelphia area there, which we, you know, we know would be Democratic votes. So these tricks work to some extent. Um, you know, there's outright voter intimidation. There are more covert uh, legal means of um, subverting, uh, you know, people's right to vote. Um, and I would say that it's really important that people get organized uh, in sort of a, a mass movement fashion around these efforts. Uh, we have to call out, you know, efforts at voter intimidation, disenfranchisement when they happen. And thankfully, we have a deep well of knowledge and history we can draw from because, unfortunately, disenfranchisement isn't new in this country, especially for people of color and for poor people. Uh, it's been going on for a long time. So while there's sort of a new shocking face to it, uh, it's it's something we've seen before. And I think that um the left and progressives know how to engage uh, on the mass movement front to combat this kind of disenfranchisement. So it's really important that we don't um, 
feel like we're uh, becoming agitated about this in private. We need to really get out uh, in the streets and agitate and uh, work in coalition with each other to call out these efforts. I think uh, our co-host uh, Richard Hill has a question for you. Thank you. Thank you, Scott and Sam. Sam, I wanted to ask you if you would assess for us the National Democratic Party's strategy and messaging as they try to mobilize to fend off a Republican takeover of the House and or Senate. Sure. So I think, you know, like a lot of progressives, um, I'm happy with parts of what Democratic leadership did in the run-up to this election, and I'm less happy with other parts. I think uh, one thing they did really well is uh, messaging and running on abortion rights and, you know, putting it out there accurately. I think that um, women's rights, the right to choose, the right to privacy were all on the ballot here. And um, I think they made that case aggressively. And they also made it specifically. And I think that's really important. Uh, You had President Biden coming out and saying, uh, I will codify Roe if, uh, you know, you return Democrats to the House and Senate and a bill comes before me, I'll sign it to codify Roe. And I think that's really important because uh, we don't always see really actionable steps from either party, but, uh, you know, from the Democrats on policy issues like this. So that was a big step. Um, and we're seeing, you know, around the country, fortunately, that folks who are when this issue is put on the ballot, when abortion is put on the ballot, as uh, you know, it was in Kansas earlier this year. Right now in Kentucky, uh, voters are rejecting um, onerous prohibitions on abortion rights. So I think that was smart for the Democrats to run on that. I think popular opinion is behind them. Um, you know, in other areas, I wish they had been more forceful in making their case. I think, obviously, uh, the economy and inflation are a big deal right now for lots of folks. Um, and I think there's a strong case to be made that, you know, a lot of the inflation we're seeing isn't due to uh, things that are within the control of the federal government. It's due to corporate profiteering. You know, you've seen corporations who have reported three or four figure percentage increases so like 100% or 1,000% increases on their profits beginning in early 2021. So coming out of the pandemic, uh, a lot of corporations simply raise prices on everything, and they're reporting uh, record returns to that. So um, I think that's good red meat for the Democratic base. I wish they had uh, spun that narrative up more and, again, said specifically what they were going to do about it instead of letting um, Republicans sort of hang this narrative around their necks that they were responsible for inflation, which, you know, they're really not. Sam, I I did want to ask you about some criticism that's been leveled against uh, progressive uh, lawmakers and candidates from the moderate and conservative wing of the Democratic Party. Uh, Their criticism usually uh, blames the left, blames the progressive wing of the Democratic Party as going too far left, causing moderate voters to oppose Democratic candidates. And, of course, their their big example that they always like to trot out is after the death of George Floyd, there were some people, not many, but some people who uh, had the bumper sticker slogan of defund the police. And that that's sort of uh, their case example number one of how the Democrats uh, went too far left and cause people to abandon the party. What, what's your read on this criticism that we see after every election? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, if you look at the policy beneath the slogans, a lot of what progressives argue for is is really popular, whether you're talking about um, reallocating resources on the municipal or state level, you know, uh, whether they're going to police budgets or going to 
mental health going to crisis counselors and, and that sort of thing, or if you're talking about something like healthcare, where um, progressives who are clamoring for single payer have public public polling behind them, lots of folks want this. Um, I, and I think it's just another case of Democrats needing to play offense when they're too often playing defense. Uh, if they have a problem with um, a particular slogan, I think it's important for them to lead on the policy instead and say, uh, you know, what we're talking about is we're talking about enormous police budgets. We're talking about police departments with military grade weapons and vehicles. And uh, we don't think that that's an appropriate uh, way for police departments around the country to be run. And I think that most of the public agrees with them. And so um, being able to push forcefully on what substantively we want to do uh, is really an important part of winning these um, policy battles and winning these messaging battles. And again, not letting uh, the right wing and Republicans hang a particular sign around the neck of policy and then having to play defense on that basis. I think it's really more about playing offense. And that will become even more true if, uh, you know, the midterms don't go that well tonight, that it will be uh, even more important that we're playing offense around our messaging and our policy. Maybe I should ask uh, uh, Bob Johnson or Asia Hussein if they have a question for our first guest, Sam Rosenthal. Yeah, you know what I have uh, a question is, is about forward-looking strategy. Are Is there a vision uh, for progressives that we can sort of hold on to as we progress through the next millennium, I guess? You know, this is some disappointing results with, with some of the elections. Sure. I think that, it, you know, it's true that um, the top-line election results might not be great tonight. I think we have to be realistic about that. And, you know, heading into the next couple of days as uh, all the votes are tallied. But um, I want to call folks' attention to what's happening farther down their ballots and, you know, um, states across the country, there's a lot of really progressive um, policy and uh, change being affected at local and state levels. A lot of it's happening through ballot measures. So you have ballot measures um, that are being voted on tonight across the country that are doing things like tackling affordable housing by levying um, taxes on Airbnbs or on uh, uh, vacant homes so that they can build more affordable housing in the city. You have the um, ballot measures again, which I talked about uh, in Kentucky and Montana, where voters, I hope, will defeat onerous anti-abortion measures. And in other states where they're going to enshrine abortion rights in their state constitutions. Um, here in, in D.C., where I am, we're going to raise the uh, minimum wage for workers who make tips. Um, and those are just ballot measures. And I think we have a lot of folks who are winning, progressives who are winning, um, at the local level as well. You know, in L.A., uh, we had that terrible scandal with the city council uh, members talking about, you know, in, in very racist terms and talking about gerrymandering their opponents out of uh, districts that they could win. But um, there are going to be uh, probably two new progressive city council members, Anisis Hernandez and Hugo Soto Martinez, who are um, both going to join the city council, most likely uh, after tonight. And so those are really strong, young uh, Latinx progressives. So I think that there's a lot to look for in terms of energy at uh, state and local levels. And even at, uh, you know, the federal level, we have folks like Greg Kassar, who's going to be uh, joining the squad in Congress next term. Uh, Summer Lee's election has just been called. 
that was a great election because she was uh, buried under a deluge of outside spending, millions and millions of dollars going against her, and she still won. So, um, you know, the block of progressive legislators is growing in the House, but I just think it's a long-term effort, and we need to be hopeful about a future that's maybe not tomorrow, but is like five years from now or ten years from now, and we just have to keep that constant, steady pressure on to make sure that we're getting the wins we need to get to build our movement. Yeah, I just wanted to mention one thing about New York. There's the proposition on the ballot about environmental protection spending, infrastructure spending, a big, big, I think it's a billion and a half dollars for that. So that's that's a positive thing. And hopefully uh, the people of New York will vote yes for that. Yeah, that's right. And we're seeing lots of great ballot measures around the country. Sam, I had a question. This is Richard speaking. I wonder about this uh, wave of authoritarian and proto-fascist sentiment that's sweeping this country and what effect the election of Lula da Silva and the defeat of Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil might have on stalling uh, the momentum toward that kind of movement that's really sweeping our country and the world. When I say sweeping our country, I mean it's, it's cropping up in dangerous places and taking hold of an entire political party. And I'm wondering if you think that the Trumpist politicians losing one of their major allies, what effect that might have on the situation here and abroad? Yeah, I mean, obviously, I hope it hurts their movement to lose Bolsonaro. You know, I think that there are interesting parallels between uh, what just happened in Brazil and what's happening in the U.S., where we've sort of both countries have sort of been on um, like this anti-politics kick where uh, I think Brazil hit it a little bit earlier. But uh, the electorate was very taken in by folks who were saying, you know, the system is broken. We're going to uh, tear the whole thing down, and I know how to fix it. And I think Bolsonaro and Trump's platforms are really similar um, in that way. Um, so, you know, I think the the right is surging there in fits and starts the way it's surging here in fits and starts. And I think that part is really important. It's, um, you know, their project is still underdeveloped the way our progressive project is underdeveloped. And what uh, we need to do is be faster than them in, in getting out to voters, getting out to activists and uh, diagnosing, you know, what's wrong with uh, neoliberalism? Why are we unhappy in the society we've created um, and what can we do to fix it? And I think that, uh, you know, the more time we spend standing around trying to figure out what we want to say, which I think um, the Democratic Party is doing a lot the more time, uh, the more runway we see to the right wing. So, uh, you know, I hope that we can be more tenacious, um, faster moving and making that case to folks here in this country. Um, and I think that's one of the lessons that, you know, we can take from Brazil. Uh, you know, it was a close election. It's not like Lula blew Bolsonaro out. This was a close election. And I think a lot of folks were really nervous here, especially when uh, it headed to a runoff. But, um, you know, it, it, an important thing is just to look at the movement that put Lula back into office and just remind ourselves that, again, it's it's uh, building a long term project, putting roots down. You know, a lot of the energy that propelled Lula into office started years ago and had a lot to do with getting Lula out of jail at the time. So there was this more mature, longer term movement that had been building over the years. And again, through just steady, constant work, they were able to 
defeat uh, that right wing surge there. So it's important to remind ourselves that, you know, um, no one's going to come help us. I think in Brazil or in the U.S., we need to really do this for ourselves. Uh, You know, Bolsonaro was also ensnared in a bunch of legal and political drama during his tenure. But that's not what brought him down. What brought him down was uh, people organizing, the left organizing and making sure that uh, they got people to the polls and they had a movement in the streets and that they were able to get Bolsonaro out of office. Well, Sam, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Appreciate your help on uh, getting our show started this evening with some uh, perspectives on progressive politics uh, around this election. And uh, how can people get in touch with Roots Action? What's what's the uh, contact information you'd like to leave with our audience? Uh, You can find us at rootsaction.org. We are also on uh, Twitter and Facebook, and we're now on TikTok as well for the TikTok-minded among your listenership. Well, thanks so much, Sam. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Take care. Bye-bye. We'll be back with more coverage of the 2022 midterm election. Please do stay tuned here on WPKN in Bridgeport. continuing coverage of the 2022 midterm election. Richard, you have our next guest on the line, Richard Wolf. Great. Well, Richard Wolf is a professor of economics emeritus at the University of Massachusetts, where he taught for over 35 years. He's currently a visiting professor in the graduate program in international affairs of the New School in New York City. He's the author of many books on capitalism and its ills and cures, including Capitalism Hits the Fan, Occupy the Economy, and Democracy at Work. His weekly economic update can be heard on dozens of stations across the country, but also right here on WPKN every Friday at 7.30 p.m. Richard Wolf, thank you so very much for joining us tonight. My privilege. I'm very glad, and I'm an enthusiastic supporter of WPKN. Thank you very much. And uh, I would like to start off with this question and see if we can lead you into a more detailed conversation about some of the aspects of the economy that we need to address tonight. But what have you found lacking in the discussion and analysis on the economy that's been happening in the mainstream media on the issues of inflation, labor shortages, pricing and all, all that kind of stuff? What, in your opinion, is uh, is lacking in, in that analysis? Well, I'm very glad you asked that question. And my answer, I hope, doesn't strike you as extreme, but I do feel very strongly, uh, and I regret having to say this, but the vast bulk of the campaigning, uh, whether it's by the president on behalf of the various 
uh, local candidates or by those candidates themselves is not only lacking in dealing with the major American problems in terms of economics, but it is very hard for people like me to avoid the conclusion that this kind of avoidance of talking about what the real basic economic crises are is an attempt to distract people from it. It it is such a, a dereliction of duty on their part to keep an honest discussion off the agenda, to face what the real problems are, to call each other out, to get real commitment, yes or no, to do something about these basic problems, makes you wonder that maybe uh, the two sides understand one another. Let's not go there. Uh, It's difficult for both of us. So let's pretend those issues either don't matter or they aren't there. Well, let's dig a bit deeper into what you think the uh, analysis and what issues actually need to be deconstructed there and unpacked. Why don't we proceed with some of that? Good. Even as recently as the last presidential election, and even more the earlier one in 2016, there was a considerable amount of talk that at least got close to the question Is the United States suffering from the collapse of its middle class, from a growing inequality between wildly wealthy one, two, three percent at the top and the vast mass of the rest of us? There was some. There weren't honest discussions about why this had happened. And there certainly were not anything like serious debates about what to do about it. The most you could get, but you did get it, was at least a statement by this or that candidate that they were, quote unquote, concerned about inequality, uh, troubled by inequality. This time around, you don't even get that kind of lip service. I mean, I'm an economist. I'm a professional economist. One of the most fundamental problems of the last 25 years of American economic history is that relentlessly we have become a nation more and more divided between a minority that are wealthy and an ever-growing majority that are having a harder and harder time getting by, and that we have shaken uh, the the commitment of this country to the so-called American dream. We have moved owning your own home beyond the reach of the majority of young people starting families. Uh, In January, the Biden administration is committed to ending the moratorium that allowed students to delay repaying their debts because of the pandemic. We're going to make them pay. We're acting as though this terrible burden Let me remind everyone that student debt is now uh, an enormity in this country. It's a bigger debt problem than the entire credit card uh, system of this country. If those people now have to start paying, they are not going to have money to do a lot of other things, like, for example, pay their mortgage, like, for example, buy goods and services whose prices are out of reach already. I mean, we are stretching 
the burdens on the middle class and the working class in this country literally to the breaking point. That's half the reason why we have the bitter, harsh polarities in our politics and the language of our political parties. So that's a root problem. But I hear, I really, I hear nothing. What are you going to do, Senator this or Congressperson that? What are you going to do about this? Are you concerned about this? No, no. We get the same old mantra from each side rehearsing the vague abstractions that they won't even abide by if they get in. But they're not even bothering to tell us lies about these issues. And that's why you get this suspicion. They don't want us to be looking to them to solve these problems. And, you know, on a certain level, they're right. They haven't solved them. These problems have been getting worse uh, over the last 25 years, as much with Republicans as with Democrats. So you're turning people away and making politics more and more a game of the professionals uh, and more and more people turning away in a kind of sense of the futility of it all. It's a very serious failure of American politics to be so unwilling to face the basic problems. Richard, this is Scott Harris. I I have a question for you in keeping with uh, what you were just uh, discussing there. there. There's a lot of grievance and concern about rising income and wealth inequality in this country and a lot of, uh, you know, equal concern about a declining standard of living in the U.S., the offshoring of good-paying manufacturing jobs to places where these big companies can, uh, you know, employ folks at starvation wages. There's a sense that the next generation won't have as many opportunities and possibly a lower standard of living than the last generation, their parents. And the Republican Party, as you indicated a moment ago, there's a lot of bitterness and a lot of polarization in the United States right now. The Republicans have successfully captured that to scapegoat immigrants, uh, communities of color. Um, anybody who is an outsider or, you know, the other is blamed for our economic dire straits when, in fact, it's neoliberal austerity policies. It's the tax policy that favors the wealthy. The trickle-down philosophy that's been employed and in place for so many years, uh, you know, it's it's a it's a fact that the Democrats can't go at this full steam ahead in terms of pointing out where the real problem emanates because many of the folks that support these policies are their campaign contributors. Yeah, it's it's a it's a tragedy to watch. It's happening around the world. This convenient scapegoat of the immigrant. It has happened before in American history, as it has in other countries. Uh, It's a pathetic display. You know, the Democrats could, even without ruffling their donors, make fun of this demonization of the immigrants. We are a country, for example, of 325 million people. The, the largest estimate of any reasonable person as to the problem of undocumented immigrants in the United States wouldn't put it at more than 10 million uh, people, most of whom I would like to remind everybody have a job and most of whom pay taxes and keep our society going. 
But even if you don't like that part of the population, the idea that those 10 10 million people who are among the poorest in our country are responsible for what happens to a nation of 325 million people is so preposterously uh, preposterously dumb and ignorant that the, the first thing you ought to do is be able to say people who are doing that are, should be ashamed of themselves, not merely hitting on the weakest, poorest people in the society, but making an argument about them that is factually ridiculous, has no merit, wouldn't be taken seriously by an educated economist that I know of. It, it, it's off the chart in its craziness. Let me give you a couple of other examples. Not only are the American people being whacked by this inflation, as they all know, but they're being whacked by something else. The Republican head of the Federal Reserve, um, Mr. Powell, together with the president of the United States, a Democrat, Mr. Biden, have joined together to raise interest rates. Okay, what does that mean? It means that everybody who borrows money to buy a car, to buy a home, to to work with a credit card, is going to be paying more. At a time when the prices are going up beyond what people can bear, you are now whacking the American people with a rising interest rate that's going to hurt, of course, as always, working class and poor people much more than rich people. And now let's examine what that is, and then I'll show you how the politicians say nothing. Number one, the job of the Federal Reserve, created a little over 100 years ago, was to prevent inflation. It's called price stability. The fact that we have an inflation means that the Federal Reserve failed to do its job. Okay, that ought to be an issue. What do we do about that? It's not the first time they failed to do what we need them. Not a word. Not a word. Here's a second example. They're raising interest rates. And we're all glued to the radio and television, learning about whether they'll raise it by three-quarters of a point or half a point. Wait a minute. I'm an economist. Let me explain. There are other ways to deal with an inflation. I'll give you the best example. 1971, Republican President Richard Nixon. He declares a wage price freeze. Anybody who raises a wage or raises a price will be arrested and put in jail. Prices stop rising. The inflation is fixed literally overnight without raising the interest rates that hurt middle and working class people. Why hasn't that been discussed? Sure, it had its weaknesses. So does raising interest rates. Why is there no discussion on something as crucial right now as anything affecting our economy? Do the Republicans and Democrats debate over wage price freezes? Do they debate over what Franklin Roosevelt did in the early 40s when he said, we're not going to use prices anymore, and he handed out ration cards to every American family? And that's how you made sure everybody got an adequate amount of stuff rather than pricing up and therefore losing all the people who can't afford it. 
One was a Democratic president, Roosevelt. One was a Republican, Nixon. They did other things. We are pretending. That's where our politics now is. We're pretending there is nothing other than raising interest rates, which happened to hurt the middle and the poor the most. It's so outrageous that you begin to wonder, did they get together beforehand on that plan to raise interest rates and then get the two parties to agree, mums the word, we're not going to talk about it, we're not going to debate it, we're not going to have anybody advocate for these alternative ways to stop inflation, even though they're a part of recent American history that millions and millions of our people lived through. Still, the pretense that there's nothing going on. It is a stunning failure of a politics to deal with its own real problems. Well, Professor Wolf, we have been really happy to have you with us on this uh, election coverage from WPKN. Thank you so much for your analysis. We really need to come back to you on another date and discuss this really after the election and see what the fallout will be from what might be a change of the guard, so to speak. Well, I would be glad to. Ever since I lived in Connecticut, uh, I've been a, a fan and a listener to PKN, and it'd be my pleasure to do that. Wonderful. Thank you so very much. Thanks, Professor. Do you stay with us? We'll be back in just a moment. listening to WPKN's continuing coverage of this 2022 midterm election. Um, Scott Harris here with Richard Hill, and we also have with us Emma Primes, uh, Asia Hussein, and Bob Johnson uh, that will be providing us uh, some updates on the elections around the country, the critical races that we're all waiting to hear about. But right now, I'm very happy to welcome to our election coverage tonight, Dr. Eve Shapiro. She's a pediatrician practicing in Tucson, Arizona for over 30 years. She's been a member of Physicians for National Health programs since shortly after its founding, and she serves on its board of directors. Dr. Shapiro is committed to working toward a health care system that is universal, equitable, and nonprofit. And Dr. Shapiro, thanks for joining us from Arizona tonight. 
Thanks for having me. So I guess the, the, the main question for people in Arizona and around the country is what's the outlook at ground zero, ground zero for Republican election deniers who uh, have been leading a lot of polls in the state? That includes Carrie Lake, who's running for governor there, as well as uh, Mark Fincham for secretary of state, both people who pledge to uh, uh, do a lot to change the election system and maybe not faithfully represent the will of the people in the next election is a big concern, not only in Arizona, I'm sure, but around the country. What's going on in Arizona as far as these, uh, this election so far tonight? Well, um, you know, we don't have any results from Arizona yet because the polls literally just co- closed a few minutes ago. But uh, looking at results from the rest of the country, it looks pretty positive that it seems like more of the uh, Democrats are winning in some of those close races and not the re- Republican election deniers. So we're hopeful that in Arizona we'll have the um, the uh, people that will trust the voters to uh, express their will and uh, agree with the results of the election. Um, but we'll know pretty soon here. Well, I, I, as, a, as a physician, I, I certainly want to get to the issue of health care, but I, I wanted to also just uh, get your feel for the emphasis that was placed by many candidates on opposition to the Supreme Court overturning and eliminating women's reproductive rights. Uh, How much of an impact has that had, do you think, on people's views on this election here in 2022? Well, I feel, especially for women voters, that was a huge issue when they realized that the rights they took for granted were really could be reversed just with one decision. And I think it really motivated a lot of women to register and to vote. And um, so I think that's a really uh, positive thing. Um, And hopefully uh, at some point we can have a national protection of uh, women's right to to choose. And, you know, that's what we're hoping for. Well, one of our co-hosts here, Richard Hill, has a question for you if if you can take that. Thanks, uh, doctor. Yeah, I wanted to ask you, we, we were talking earlier about what the Democrats, the National Democratic Party's strategy was in leading up to this election. And we noted, actually, that there was no representation of the Medicare for all policy represented in most of the major candidates that were running, the senatorial candidates at all. But there were some elements of the Inflation Reduction Act, which pertained to health care. I wonder if you would yes. talk about some of those and remark on how unfortunate it is that the Democrats really didn't emphasize those things in their races. Yeah, we were a little surprised by that because, um, as you mentioned, the Inflation Reduction Act had some major portions that would really bring down health care costs. And when people are so worried about inflation, well, medical bills are a huge uh, expense. And to keep down the cost of uh, medical bills is a huge benefit in reducing um, people's out-of-pocket expenses. So some of those things were um, in the Inflation Reduction Act was to let uh, Medicare negotiate prices with the pharmaceutical industry. You know, when Medicare Part D passed that covered uh, medicines, um, that was uh, specifically forbidden, and it was a huge mistake because uh, Medicare pays way more than something like the VA. The VA system does negotiate prices. 
and get significantly lower prices. And if um, if Medicare will to do that, which now they will with the Inflation Reduction Act, that really will decrease costs. In addition, um, price of insulin was capped for those people who are on Medicare who require insulin. And um, then there were several other uh, provisions in in uh, that that bill as well that would really save money. But we see as Medicare for All as the biggest saver because because it it gets rid of the private insurance industry, which takes right now to 20% of the healthcare budget. That would be a huge savings that then could go actually to healthcare for people. And that's why we're really working hard to uh, get people to understand that and to have that as an issue going forward. One follow-up there. Did the insulin cap, the cap on price of insulin, did that go into effect immediately, or is that another one of these? No, I, but it's pretty soon. I, I'm pretty sure. But it's only for people on Medicare. It was, it was uh, not extended to people with private insurance. The Republicans refused to allow that to apply to people with private insurance, which is too bad because many people with diabetes are not over 65, and so that won't be a benefit. But um, potentially, if there is a Democratic majority in the House and Senate, some more progressive legislation can happen. Um, Now, we see these as kind of incremental changes, but at least have something done in in the near term to help people with health care costs while we work to educate people and have them see that a more transformative system would be better. Well, thank you, Dr. Shapiro. Anything you'd like to close with in terms of the work you're doing at Physicians for a National Health Program and the support really quite strongly around the country for a universal single-payer health care system like Medicare for All? Well, one thing that we worked on really uh, significantly last year is to make people aware of the increased corporatization of health care and the um, corporatization of traditional Medicare um, through the uh, DCE program, that's Direct Contracting Entity, or now it's called ACO Reach. And that basically kind of sells doctors and patients to private equity firms, and they can take profit from the money they get from Medicare uh, that goes to their profit rather than to health care. So we've worked really hard to make people aware, including members of Congress who were not even aware this was happening. So that's been a huge issue um, that we want to try to uh, reverse because we see that as um, really going, bringing us in the wrong direction. I, I did want to mention one other thing. I'm, you know, I am a pediatrician and um, do you know with some of the, um, the uh, executive actions taken by uh, President Biden, um, early on, the child poverty rate has decreased by one half. It went from 11% to 5% over the last few years. That's another issue that I think the Democrats should have been talking about and didn't. But we've made some really good progress, in, 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 and health, child poverty is definitely related to child health. So that's something else I just want to mention that um, I think should have been talked about a little more. Well, thank you for spending time with us and, and on these critical issues, as you said, aren't much discussed in the debate around this uh, 2022 campaign. Appreciate you being here, and we'll stay in touch to have you Great. do some commentary on, on health care issues in the future. Thanks. Great. Thank you. you. Take care. That's Dr. Eve Shapiro, a pediatrician practicing in Tucson, Arizona, and a member of uh, Physicians for a National Health Program. 
Okay. Well, I think right now we're going to turn to our guest, Kayla Mohammed, who is working with Friends of the Earth, the organization Friends of the Earth. Kayla, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Our pleasure. I just want to mention that Kayla serves as the federal policy advocate for Friends of the Earth, where she supports the organization's federal advocacy with Congress and the executive branch. And I wanted to just ask you if you would just say a word about Friends of the Earth, what its mission is, and what kind of issues it, it is confronting. Of course. So Friends of the Earth is an international organization, and it was founded in 1969. It split from the Sierra Club because the Sierra Club had a positive approach to nuclear um, energy and Friends of the Earth was completely against nuclear energy. And to this day, we push for a better environmental future by being bold and fearless voice and by fighting for a systematic transformation um, to the world's problems. And we are just trying to organize and build a long-term, environmentally friendly Earth for everyone. Based on that, what kind of grade would you give the Biden administration so far in its legislative agenda and some of the executive orders Biden has issued? So after the Inflation Reduction Act was signed into law, I believe that even though it had some major flaws like tying together the production of fossil fuels with renewables, it was still the largest piece of climate legislation in U.S. history, which is huge, right? And with that, you know, we would rate the Biden administration probably a B because, like I said, even though the IRA had some major flaws, every climate piece that's coming out of it is is massive and will do so well for the U.S. Yeah, so what what are some of the potential benefits or gains that might occur from it? You know, we're trying to re- reduce the this gigantic thing called our national carbon footprint. How far along toward the goal of carbon neutrality will this bring us? Well, according to the IRA, it's supposed to reduce emissions by 40% or more by 2030. So here's hoping that it does do that. Okay. Are you optimistic about that? I would like to say optimistic about that, yes. I wanted to ask you also about what you believe, your organization believes, we stand to lose if the Democrats lose the House and or the Senate. Should we be bracing for a, a real fight when Republicans may try to undo some of the things that have been accomplished in these two years? I think that the GOP, either partially or fully taking control of Congress, would be nothing short of a catastrophic loss for the environment and our desperately needed clean energy transition, but also for reproductive rights, the right to vote, and so much more. Regardless of the outcome, we have to work together and we have so much work to do. Democrats must be prepared to fight and defend against one of the most anti-environment, anti-democratic, and regressive Congress in recent memory. All right. And co-host Scott Harris has a question for you. 
Hi, Kayla. Thanks for joining us on this election night. You know, one feature of this election that was disturbing was that there was almost little or no debate or even discussion about climate change and what, uh, you know, our government here in the United States and governments around the world should be doing about it. There is this cop conference coming up in Egypt and the country has suffered, you know, these major catastrophic storms most recently in Florida, but there's wildfires, floods, just, you know, erratic weather that follows the pattern of climate change cause uh, severe weather events that our climate scientists tell us is a trend that's only going to get worse. I wonder, why do you think it is with so much public attention and concern about climate change that our politicians and our news media really failed to cover this issue adequately, if, if at all? That's a great question. I think that, you know, in order to stop climate change at the source, that means we need to stop burning fossil fuels and stop big oil's exploitation of our planet. For decades, the fossil fuel industry has been in the driver's side seat and has raked in profits at the expense of frontline communities whose neighborhoods they target for building dirty energy projects. As a result, low-income communities and communities of color unjustly deal with harms of their health. Also, President Biden must take the lead on tackling climate crisis if he's serious about being a climate leader. And I would like to mention that we also need to stop electing people to office who are in big oil pockets and instead elect those who will actually stand up for people and our planet. Saving democracy and our planet is a year-long battle and the public must stay politically engaged in all elections from federal to local. And I think in recent years, we've seen such a huge outpour and cry from people going to the polls, especially younger people who are saying that they want climate change on the ballot, that they want Congress to do something about climate change. And we need to keep that momentum up and really let Congress know that the people of this country want to see something done with climate change. Kayla, I'd like to ask you, since you mentioned Biden and, and the United States are taking the lead in fighting for a, a solution to this catastrophic climate emergency that is coming at us like a runaway train, what do you think the United States should be talking about at COP27 starting almost immediately? All discussions of the climate crisis should focus on cutting fossil fuel emissions. At the source, rich countries, including the U.S., must finally do their fair share in addressing the global climate crisis and in a way that prioritizes climate justice. This means that because wealthy countries are the ones who created this crisis, it is their responsibility to strongly combat it. We're hoping rich countries will drastically curtail their own emissions and provide a long climate finance for the adaption, loss, and damage that poor nations are facing due to extreme weather. I also think it's important to note we need to be cautious of terms like net zero pledges 
and nature-based solutions, which amount to a false promises and delay tactics. Kayla, last question for you. I wanted to ask you what you think the impact of the election of Lula da Silva in Brazil, the defeat of Bolsonaro and his rampage through the Brazilian rainforest, what do you think the effect of that will be on the planet and on the environmental movement here and globally? While my focus is mostly domestic politics, Friends of the Earth Action was thrilled to see a pro-environment candidate win in Brazil. It's an important victory for forests, indigenous communities, and the people of Brazil. We are really hoping to have a similar inspiring result in our elections here at home. Very good. Kayla, Mohammed, we want to thank you very much. Kayla is the uh, federal policy advocate for Friends of the Earth, a very important environmental organization. Thanks again for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Kayla. Excuse me. A quick musical break and be back with our next guest, who's the co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign. That's Dr. Reverend Liz Theo Harris. So do stay with us here on our continuing uh, 2022 midterm election coverage here on WPKN in Bridgeport. Stay with us. Listening to WPKN's coverage of the 2022 midterm election campaign. I'm Scott Harris here with Richard Hill, Bob Johnson, Asia Hussein, and Emma Primes. We're trying to cover the issues more than the horse race this evening. So if you're watching a TV, uh, you know, watching the statistics roll by in the horse race, we hope you'll uh, keep your volume up to hear some of the issues we're going to be covering this evening and have been covering since 8 o'clock tonight. Uh, Our next guest who's joining us right now is Dr. Reverend Liz Theo Harris. Dr. Theo Harris is co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign, along with uh, Reverend Dr. William Barber, familiar to many of our listeners. She serves as the director of the Cairo Center for Religious uh, Rights and Social Justice at Union Theological Seminary. Dr. Reverend Theo House, thank you so much for making time to join us on such a busy night when we're all holding our breath and uh, the tension is uh, only building this evening. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. So, Reverend Theo Harris, I I wanted to ask you, first of all, uh, to tell our listeners a bit about uh, what the Poor People's Campaign has been doing, you and uh, Reverend Dr. William Barber have been doing, in attempting to mobilize uh, people who are are the working poor and and poor folks all across the country, mobilize them to vote in this critical election campaign. You've been traveling the country. You've been holding all sorts of events. Tell us a little bit about that project and uh, maybe some stories from along the way of trying to pump people up and getting them excited to participate in this important election. 
Well, that's right. I mean, you know, here we have uh, a third of the U.S. electorate who is poor and low income, and yet um, far too uh, far too rarely do we hear about the real issues that are impacting folks. And so the Poor People's Campaign, after we held one of the largest um, gatherings, mobilizations, um, right there on Pennsylvania Avenue in Washington, D.C., um, in U.S. history, about 150,000 people strong, poor and low-income folks from all over the country um, for a mass poor people and low-wage workers assembly and moral march on Washington. We uh, then, you know, tr- quickly turned to reaching out, um, texting, calling, canvassing, um, door knocking, uh, poor and low-income people, and um, mostly focused on low-propensity voters, folks that are are less likely to turn out in elections and less likely because of, you know, voter suppression and and the attack on voting rights, but also because, you know, people lack transportation, childcare, and just simply don't hear the issues and concerns that people have, you know, coming from our candidates and from our politicians. And so, you know, over the the 50 days leading up to, to this evening um, and today, uh, we reached out to more than 6 million poor and low-income, low-propensity voters. We focused on 15 states, um, uh, you know, uh, battleground states to our way of thinking. Some of that is um, uh, states that, you know, have highly contested elections, but also states like Mississippi, like Alabama, that, that often are, are kind of forgotten and looked over, but where uh, there are large sections of poor and low-income people who can really make a difference. Um, you know, uh, we've done a couple of reports over the last couple of years looking at the, the impact and potential impact of poor and low-income voters when, when folk vote around an agenda, of agenda for living wages and, and, and voting rights and health care and um, programs like the child tax credit, um, you know, in Florida, uh, which we're seeing, you know, a lot going on tonight, uh, you know, from the from uh, the 2018 and 2016 elections, um, you know, just 4% more of poor and low-income voters were to turn out. Uh, that would have exceeded the margin of victory, right? And so here you have, in, in so many states across the country, uh, poor and low-income people who who have the power with their voice, with their vote, to to change the kind of political calculus. And so we've been reaching out, we've been having conversations, we've been holding events. You know, I was in Florida this past weekend, um, you know, with poor and low-income folk, um, mostly in the Fort Myers area, um, but from really across the state who are, are still just really reeling from Hurricane Ian. And we're not hearing those stories. We're not hearing about folks that are, you know, living on their porches because their houses have molded out and, um, and they uh, can't go in them, but they have nowhere else to be. We're not hearing uh, stories of, of folks that are being evicted um, just a couple of weeks after one of the worst storms that's ever hit. Um, uh, because, you know, the developers are trying to gentrify. And we're not hearing that in Florida, um, you know, so many de- election places um, had to be closed because of the, the impact of the storm and, and not enough, um, you know, polling places or, or lock boxes for ballot drops um, were opened up, especially in poor and low-income communities. You know, uh, DeSantis um, made sure that, that places that, that were, you know, with his base of voters, that they had, you know, easy ways to, to cast their ballots. But, um, you know, in the community I was in, um, uh, where where people are struggling just to meet their basic needs, um, they're also being denied the right to vote. 
and and that's not alone, right? I mean, I was in Wisconsin um, uh, just some weeks before well, the Poor People's Campaign was holding, you know, marches and marches to the polls, and you know, heard about all kinds of voters who, you know, are are facing the denial of health care, uh, the lack of living wages, and and um, you know, when when we were organizing in you know a place like Asheville, North Carolina, we heard from voters who who said that you know, eligible voters who said they hadn't participated in the last elections because they never really thought that they could make a difference. Um, but by being involved in organizing and mobilizing, uh, you know, they were they were for sure going to turn out this year um, and really cast their votes for, for candidates that were talking about issues that, that matter to, to really the vast majority of people. But, but with so many suffering, um, you know, uh, it's so important to, you know, be involved right now. And so there's there's amazing organizing going on. Um, and, and people are, you know, uh, kind of putting out this this idea that we've been having in the Poor People's Campaign that our votes are not support, they're demands. Um, they're demands that, that these politicians, that these candidates, you know, actually um, lift from the bottom with their policies so that people can actually rise. Thank you for that, Dr. Harris. I do have uh, Richard Hill, co-host here, who has got a question for you. Yes, Dr. Theo Harris, I wanted to just get your reflection and sense of the impact of the Dobbs decision on the populations that you have been contacting and what you predict could be the immediate future and long-term future of that decision, how it might impact your population. Well, I think it's a really important question, right? I mean, uh, the abortion access, the right to abortion, um, uh, and the denial of the, the taking away of that constitutional right, um, I mean, that is something that is impacting poor and low-income people the most. Um, you know, the states that had um, trigger laws that went into effect right after Dobbs, um, you know, those were some of the poorest states in our country. Um, uh, the, the, the folks who seek abortions um, um, are, you know, majority living uh, um, on under the poverty line or, or hovering right, right above it. Um, uh, what we also know is that... Um, you know, as these abortion clinics close up, uh, sometimes that's the only medical care, um, especially for women um, and for those who can bear children, um, not just for abortion, but for, for other medical needs. And so, um, you know, there's a direct correlation between attacking people's right to abortion um, and actually the health outcomes of poor and low-income people, um, the educational outcomes of poor and low-income people. You know, really, the, the, the more abortion restrictions and bans that exist in a given place, um, that means more poverty for, for parents and, and less education for kids. I mean, these, these statistics are, are, are very clear. And so um, I think it's important for us to talk about that um, because, again, uh, you know, the Dobbs decision has a disproportionate impact on poor and low-income people. And, and yet we're not hearing uh, people talk about that much. And, um, and we already are, are seeing this in the states that were organized. You know, the Poor People's Campaign and National Call for Moral Revival has coordinating committees in about 40 states across the country. And so many folks are, are, are talking about the intersection of, of the lack of living wages, the lack of health care, you know, these attacks on abortion rights, um, the attacks on LGBTQ people, attacks on immigrants, and, and really, you know, who's, who's right there at the center. Um, you know, impacted first and worst are, are poor and low-income people. 
Reverend Theo Harris, I did have a question for you before we run out of time, and that is uh, there are great concerns, of course, about who's going to control Congress as a result of uh, today's election. Social justice and social safety net programs are on the ballot, really. Uh, We've had uh, Senator Ron Johnson as well as uh, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy both talk about sunsetting Social Security and Medicare And, of course, there are also threats of major cuts in social programs that the nation's uh, low-income families rely on. What are your big concerns about control of Congress? And I know that the Poor People's Campaign will not just be kind of, you know, sitting and waiting for the blows, but uh, be aggressively countering any moves that might happen as a result. Well, that's right. I mean, what we know is that... um, it's more than, you know, they cut back and we fight back, but that we have to actually be out there, you know, inspiring people, organizing people um, and and, you know, not cooperating and and engaging in nonviolent direct action, um, you know, around these issues that are really, you know, impacting the vast majority of people. And that actually, you know, programs like Medicare, programs like Social Security, programs like, you know, uh, uh, good uh, public education, you know, living wages. I mean, these are wildly popular programs and wildly popular um, plans. And yet we have, you know, uh, all of these politicians um, and potentially even more after, you know, the levels of voter suppression and intimidation and, and just, you know, what's happening in our politics today, um, who, who, who are pledging, kind of proudly pledging, you know, to attack these, these really important um, kind of foundational um, uh, programs um, in this country. And, and again, this is in the richest country in the world where, you know, before the pandemic even hurt, hit, we had 140 million or 43.5% of the population um, in this rich nation living in poverty or one emergency away from absolute economic ruin. And, and, and so to kind of beat people when they're down um, as, you know, inflation rises and prices go up and, and we approach another, you know, potential recession um, to have uh, folks, you know, again, vowing that they're going to just take away, you know, some of the, the lifeline that folks have um, to health care, to income, to to other kinds of support. I mean, this is just immoral. Um, and so we won't take it lying down. We, we're not going to just respond and react. You know, we are, are organizing and mobilizing and engaging people and registering people for a movement that votes, but also that protests and acts and sings and, and you know, really puts forward the the lie that this is not as good as it gets. We, we are not living in a world or a nation of scarcity. The only scarcity that exists is a scarcity of moral consciousness and political will to actually lift the load of poverty and to pass programs that, that matter. And so, you know, uh, I am worried. I'm worried about, you know, some of these very basic things, especially on top of what people are already facing. Um, and um, But I also know that people are doing bold and visionary organizing out there, um, uh, both around these elections, but also just around these issues that impact people and, and are going to continue and, and are, you know, not going to rest until um, people win the kind of uh, freedom and rights um, and dignity that everyone deserves. Well stated. And thanks so much for, for your work and Reverend Barber's work at the Poor People's Campaign. What's the website there in case our listeners want to check in? 
Great. So poorpeoplescampaign.org, and I also direct the Cairo Center, cairocenter.org, and Bishop Barber um, is president of Repairs of the Breach, which is breachrepairs.org. Um, hope that people will get involved in, in a movement because we, we need everyone for sure. Appreciate all your critically important work. Thanks for joining us tonight. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's uh, Dr. Reverend Liz Theo Harris, co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign. This is WPCAN's continuing coverage of the 2022 midterm election campaign. Stay with us. we got more coming up. We'll be speaking about foreign policy in just a moment with Mel Goodman. So do stay tuned. Tune to WPKN Radio's coverage of the 2022 midterm election campaign. I'm Scott Harris, joined by co-hosts Richard Hill, Bob Johnson, Asia Hussein, and Emma Primes, and we're covering the election results, but more focus, of course, tonight on issues rather than the horse race. So we're going to be uh, turning our attention right now to foreign policy. That was uh, an issue not much talked about in this election campaign. And joining us right now is Mel Goodman. He's a senior fellow at the Center for International Policy and adjunct professor of international relations at Johns Hopkins University. His 42-year government career included tours at the Central Intelligence Agency, the Department of State, and the Department of Defense's National War College, where he was a professor of international security. Professor Mel Goodman, thank you so much for making time to be on our election uh, coverage this evening. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. Good to be with you. So I'm going to open up with the first question. I know our co-hosts will have some uh, comments and questions as well. But in terms of foreign policy, it really didn't come up in a big way at all in this election campaign. The Ukraine war didn't come up except for some comments here and there by Republicans saying they were going to cut off Ukraine. Um, And, of course, the threat of nuclear war looms uh, by accident or miscalculation with some of the careless talk by Vladimir Putin we've heard. And it just didn't seem to rise to uh, the attention of our candidates or the media. What's what's your take on foreign policy and what's at stake in this election here? Well, I think a lot's at stake, but uh, as you say, it didn't have any impact on this election whatsoever. Uh, in fact, when each party tried to suggest maybe a different way of looking at Ukraine, uh, even the Republicans, when they said they weren't going to write a blank check for Ukraine, Uh, McCarthy had to pull back some of his remarks, and when the uh, progressive Democrats, there were about 30 of them, who uh, released a letter uh, urging a ceasefire or at least some diplomatic negotiations, uh, they had to retract the letter. They had to pull it back. But the administration did get the message to Zelensky, and Zelensky today has uh, made a reference toward talks. My concern is that the Republicans do really well uh, in the Senate, and they could capture as many as 54 seats. It doesn't look like that's going to happen because I don't think we're going to see this great red wave that I that I feared. But if there's any talk of cutting back on aid from 
from Ukraine, uh, military aid, it's going to have an impact on our European allies. It's going to have an impact on NATO and on the European Union and, of course, particularly on Ukraine itself. So I see that's a, a huge issue that could be affected by the outcome of the election. I still worry about Iran because I don't completely write off the possibility of the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action being reinstated. Uh, Trump never should have pulled us out of it. It wasn't a perfect treaty, but it, it did get the job done for the next 20 years. Uh, and now Iran is in a good position to get close to a nuclear weapon. They've obviously mastered the nuclear weapons uh, cycle. And again, when you have Republicans in a majority position in the Senate, it's going to be, I think, impossible for uh, the Democrats to move in that direction. I look at immigration as a national security issue. And in the area of immigration, it doesn't get talked about, uh, but there, there is a bipartisan effort, effort led by Cinema and Hassan and John Cornyn from Texas uh, to create some kind of border agreement that would increase the number of uh, courts uh, on the border, the number of immigration centers, the number of judges, to make asylum a, a more respectable process than it is uh, right now. And, of course, it goes without saying that the whole issue of uh, climate change, which I think Biden did address, uh, will be much more difficult in terms of the Republicans not wanting the government to pay for anything dealing with the climate and not even recognizing that there is such a thing as a climate uh, problem. And that could extend also to the COVID issues, which the Republicans haven't handled uh, very well. And, and finally, again, if the Republicans take over the House, which I think is likely, but probably not the, the great red wave that certainly I feared, uh, they're going to be nothing but investigations. Uh, Blinken is going to have to spend a lot of time explaining the Afghan withdrawal. Mayorkas is going to have to spend a lot of time on the Hill dealing with uh, the border situation. Garland has already been warned in a rather ugly fashion by McCarthy that you better hold on to all of your documents. You're going to be spending a lot of time on the Hill. So uh, there, there are certainly issues that will be affected by a Republican uh, victory. It's going to be a, a much more narrow victory than I think a lot of people expected, but I think it's going to be enough to take back the House. And it seems very possible that they'll pick up one seat uh, in the Senate. Uh, they're going to hold, it looks like, in Wisconsin, North Carolina, and Ohio. Uh, we still don't know about Pennsylvania. So that they can add one seat from uh, Nevada or Georgia, uh, which is possible. Uh, then I think we're going to be in some trouble in terms of national security policy. Our co-host Richard Hill has a, a question for you. Richard? Yes, uh, Mel, I wanted to ask you to focus a, a little bit on the situation in Ukraine vis-a-vis -vis Russia. I, I wonder if the notion of the United States, really, the past 10 years or so, being sort of the dog that caught the bus, in a sense, of ginning up this hostility toward Russia and finally achieving the goal of having a really an, an official new Cold War going on where the United States has to oppose even having negotiations with Russia over Ukraine. I wonder if you'd comment on that. Yeah, well, I go back even further. I go back uh, 25 years. I go back to the Bill Clinton administration and the idea of expanding NATO after we made a verbal commitment 
to both Mikhail Gorbachev and Edward Shevardnadze, his foreign minister, that we wouldn't leapfrog over East Germany to go into East Europe if the Soviets took their 380,000 troops uh, out of East uh, Germany. Uh, that was a commitment that Baker made. I interviewed Baker for a book I did on Shevardnadze, and he confirmed that he even used the word leapfrog. That was uh, his word. And I also interviewed Shevardnadze, who confirmed the same conversation. And, and George H.W. Bush said that to uh, Gorbachev. Baker was willing to put it in writing. Uh, he was overruled by Scowcroft and uh, Bush. And then Clinton ignored the agreement. And I think that started the, the buildup in Eastern Europe that led to a missile defense in Poland and Romania that George W. Bush started and Obama should have reversed. And now we essentially have a base uh, in Poland. So no matter how Ukraine turns out, and I, don't, I still don't see this Pyrrhic victory that Ukraine is going to win. I don't know how they're going to get all these Russian forces off of their uh, territory. Uh, but we're going to end up, if we're not there already in a Cold War situation, we're certainly going to end up in a Cold War situation where there's no dialogue uh, that will allow uh, some easing of that tension. Uh, now, in the, in the Cold War from the 50s and 60s and 70s, arms control provided the instrument for easing the Cold War. We're not talking to the Russians about anything. Uh, we're not having the conversations that Blinken should be having with Lavrov uh, and that Austin should be making uh, with the Russian defense minister. Um, and Putin, even though he did had some of his people raised the issue of nuclear weapons. He, he said a week ago that he doesn't see this as a scenario that involves nuclear weapons. And I think the mainstream media hasn't really treated that remark with the uh, importance that I think it deserves. Um, so I, I think the idea of getting Zelensky to at least refer to uh, the need for talks uh, if they're going to be serious talks, is important because as, as long as this fighting continues, the potential for escalation and the potential for involving uh, European countries in this battle, I think, increases. And I think it would be a war that no one really wants, uh, but like World War I, which was sort of an accidental war, we could be in a much wider confrontation. Well, Mel, so we want to thank you so much for joining us on this election night and appreciate your insight into a whole range of issues that uh, we're glad you talked about and gave us some good insight on immigration as well as uh, foreign policy and a whole range of things. So thanks so much. Thank you, Scott. Good to be with you. We'll stay in touch. Take care. Bye now. Bye-bye. That's Mel Goodman, a senior fellow at the Center for International Policy and adjunct professor of international relations at Johns Hopkins University here on WPCAN's election night coverage. And joining us right now by phone from Wisconsin is Ruth Conniff. She's editor-in-chief of the Wisconsin Examiner. She formerly served as the editor-in-chief of the Progressive Magazine, where she worked for many years uh, from both Madison and Washington, D.C. Her book, Milked, How an American Crisis Brought Together Midwestern Dairy Farmers and Mexican Workers, won the 2022 Studs and Ida Turkle Award from the New Press Ruth, it's great to have you on here on election night. Thank you for joining us. Glad to be here. So you are in a critical state there in Wisconsin uh, for a number of reasons. Of course, you've got an important governor's race, an extremely close Senate race, and there's concern about a supermajority uh, in the state legislature. 
that could really um, uh, upend democracy in that state where uh, the Republicans potentially could have veto-proof majorities where whatever the governor or the majority of the population wanted uh, may be irrelevant. Tell us a little bit about what you're watching and any returns that might indicate where things are headed in Wisconsin. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm here at uh, Governor Tony Evers' watch party in downtown Madison, Wisconsin, where, um, you know, people are glued to CNN, as is always the case with these things, kind of waiting for enough returns to come in. About half of our returns are in now. Um, So a lot of things could move around, but there are some early signs that are very promising for the Democrats, both for Governor Tony Evers, the incumbent, uh, and also for his lieutenant governor, Mandela Barnes, who's running as a challenger to Senator Ron Johnson in the Senate race. And as you pointed out, both of those races are extremely tight. They're toss-ups. They're so close. They're within the margin of error uh, in polling going into tonight. So turnout has been very, very high today. That's one really good sign for the Democrats, particularly here in Dane County, uh, which is a blue island. There was very strong turnout of students on the UW campus here Uh, We did a live blog throughout the day, and we had reporters out around the state kind of looking at what was happening in polling places. There were not the disruptions, the challenges, the voter intimidation and harassment that was feared. It was a quiet, um, you know, voting day, and people were able to cast their ballots, which I think sort of followed the trend around the country. There was a lot of fear about that, but it didn't come true. And then, interestingly, just recently looking at the returns, It looks like Tim Michaels, who is running as the Republican challenger to the Democratic governor, is not doing as well as expected in the suburbs of Milwaukee, which are sort of the conservative bastion. And the thing is, it's going to come down to a very small handful of counties that are very important for Democrats and very important for Republicans. And what they call the wow counties of Waukesha, Ozaki, and Washington County around Milwaukee are extremely important for the Republicans. And Michaels is not doing as well as Scott Walker did in any of his elections for governor when he won here in Wisconsin as a Republican. And Evers is doing better. Now, Michaels is still winning those counties, but he's just not winning by as much. Mm -hmm. And so that is an early indicator that looks good for Democrats with 90 percent of Waukesha County reporting. He is at, let me just look really quickly. I'll go back to my... (laughs) My track, my my neurotic tracking. Uh, Yeah, with 90% of suburban Waukesha in, uh, Michaels is leading Evers by 21 points, but Walker won Waukesha with 33.6 points in 2018 Mm -hmm. when he lost the whole race, and 45% in 2014 when he won. So, so that's a big deal. That's an early indicator. Um, Evers is running away here in Dane County, which is not a surprise, but the significant turnout makes this 78% of the vote that he's got so far here with half the returns in, uh, you know, a larger number of votes, potentially. Uh, Ruth, I have a question. Uh, this is Richard Hill. As you talk about Milwaukee, what, what about the African-American vote, which is highly concentrated there? What efforts were made, direct efforts were made to turn out that vote and to appeal to those voters conversations in those communities. Well, Barack Obama was here last weekend, oh, and yeah. that was obviously a huge get-out-the-vote effort. Uh, Mandela Barnes, who's running for U.S. Senate, is from Milwaukee. He's done a lot of events in Milwaukee. He's been focused there. Um, and, of course, this is, you know, there, these are two com- distinct areas. There are the white flight suburbs of Milwaukee that I was talking about that are so important for the Republicans, and then there's the city of Milwaukee, which is so important for the Democrats. And, you know, so 
So get out the vote is always heavily focused on Milwaukee. Um, there are a lot of nonprofit, you know, nonpartisan or at least nominally uh, not partisan groups that have been working on getting out the vote in Milwaukee. Um, but, you know, we'll we'll see. We'll see how that went. It seems like voter turnout was very high and um, and that people were able to vote. Ruth, I, I did want to ask you to tell our audience about the disturbing fact of life in Wisconsin, where there has been such extreme partisan gerrymandering in that state that the Republicans, as I understand it, only have to win 40 percent of the vote in the legislative branch in order to control it. And they're on the verge of getting okay. a super majority, which means democracy is dysfunctional in Wisconsin Absolutely. with such gerrymandering. Uh, this supermajority, if they win it tonight, could actually make the governor and the majority of the voters in Wisconsin irrelevant to future policy. That's right. That's right. It comes down to six seats, five seats in the state assembly and only one seat in the state Senate that the Republicans need to take in order to have a veto-proof majority in the state legislature, which means that the Republican majority in the state legislature can just run over if, if Evers is reelected, a Democratic governor, of course, if Michaels is elected, then, uh, you know, all bets are off anyway. But Evers, who likes to describe himself as a goalie, as a really good goalie, he has vetoed a record number of bills for any governor in the history of the state. Many of them were um, very strict anti-abortion bills. We're now living under an 1849 abortion ban that was passed 71 years before women got the right to vote. It has no exceptions for rape or incest. Uh, Michaels has said that that's exactly where he is on the issue. Uh, Evers has refused to sign off on bans on birth control and other, um, you know, steps further than the, the step backward into the 19th century that we've already taken. Uh, you know, democracy itself, voting rights, um, you know, there are so many issues on which there's a very, very big difference between the parties. And, and Wisconsin is a 50-50 state. You know, Biden won here by 20,000 votes. In the last election and in 2016, Trump won here by 20,000 votes. So it's a very close state. And our state legislature does not reflect that because in 2010, the Republicans, when Scott Walker was governor, uh, drew new maps in a secret room in the back of a law firm. A federal judge called it the worst partisan gerrymander in the nation. It went all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court before the court decided that partisan gerrymandering was not an issue that it was willing to take up. Uh, so we have we have now got a new map. Uh, that's even worse. <laughs> After the last census, uh, there's a new map that the Republican legislature drew. Uh, they threw away the map that was driven that was drawn by the People's Commission, appointed by Governor Evers, and and they drew themselves into even even more gerrymandered districts. So, yeah, those six seats in the legislature are very important. They're very small budget, uh, below the radar races, but they're going to make a huge difference in the future of the state and ultimately in the future of national politics as well. Ruth, it seems that uh, Wisconsin is a laboratory for this kind of extreme gerrymandering and uh, the destruction of democratic checks and balances. What, if anything, is being done at the grassroots level to challenge this this really catastrophe for majority rule and a victory for minority rule? Well, there's been a huge grassroots movement for fair maps. And, you know, one of the really dispiriting things about the last uh, redistricting after the last census is that there was a huge movement across the state to get communities involved in drawing maps because it's not just about partisanship. It's also about communities of interest, 
putting people in the same school districts and water districts together so that they can actually get representation on the issues that are important to them as citizens. People really learned about that. They got involved in it. They were interested in it. They drew maps that were really fair, that really made sense. And none of that went anywhere. There were, you know, huge protests at the Capitol. There were public hearings in which every single speaker all day long opposed the Republican maps, and then they just rammed them through anyway. So the public consciousness of this issue is very high. As far as what can happen to change things, the most significant event will be a spring Supreme Court election, which could tilt the balance of our state Supreme Court. And if there is a liberal majority on the state Supreme Court, they could take up these maps and there would not have to be another 10 years before the next census before they could be redrawn. Wow. Well, I want to thank you for joining us, uh, Ruth. Anything you'd like to leave our uh, listeners with in terms of the importance of what's going on there this evening with the election in Wisconsin? It's just a very tight race here. And, you know, I feel like coming out of today, the fact that there was not violence, intimidation, uh, blocking of votes was, was sort of uplifting. I think, you know, it's easy to get overwhelmed by how bleak things look at the state level here and also nationally in our politics right now and seeing, you know, people just incrementally working towards the goal of a, of a real democratic result is uplifting. And it's just a reminder that that's all we can do. Well, I want to thank you for joining us, Ruth. Appreciate all your great work in journalism over these many years we've been talking and um, good luck to all of us tonight. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you, Bye. Ruth. Bye-bye. That's uh, Ruth Conniff, editor-in-chief of the Wisconsin Examiner, formerly served as editor-in-chief of the Progressive Magazine, uh, speaking to us tonight from Madison, Wisconsin. tuned to WPKN in Bridgeport, and you're listening to uh, this station, WPKN's midterm election coverage, 2022. And I'm um, Scott Harris here with Richard Hill, Bob Johnson, Asia Hussein, and Emma Primes. And we're glad you tuned in. Many of you are uh, listening to us as you watch uh, the horse race uh, numbers come in on your television. So thank you for listening in on more the issues side of thing than the horse race as we talk about issues this evening. And we're very happy right now to have on the line from Georgia, and that's Greg Pallast. He's an award-winning investigative journalist, 
author of The Best Democracy Money Can Buy and other New York Times bestselling titles. Greg has been reporting on voter suppression for more than 20 years. His new documentary film about Georgia Governor Brian Kemp is titled Vigilante, Georgia's Vote Suppression Hitman. And we're very happy that you could join us uh, live from Georgia tonight, Greg. Thank you for being there. Uh, You're very welcome. What can you tell us about the races so far that you've been covering and the impact of uh, the thing you've been covering all these years, voter suppression? Okay, let's get clear on something, Scott. When we use the term vote suppression, we mean shafting black people out of their votes. That's what it's about. And also some Asian Americans, young people, Hispanics. That's what we're talking about. You know, when someone steals your car, you don't say, my car has been suppressed. Right. <laughs> so, so, you know, we're talking about this is ugly business. Now, I've been going to Georgia. I'm from L.A. I've been going to Georgia and working. You know, as you know, I've worked for BBC. I lived in London and The Guardian. But I keep ending up in Georgia because this is the uh, test kitchen of vote suppression te- uh, techniques. And um, and so we're, we're back down here with the same game. Right now, as we speak, there is a dead heat between um, between Herschel Walker, Trump's uh, the Republican candidate for Senate, and the incumbent, uh, the Reverend Senator Warnock, Raphael Warnock, who was the um, pastor who took Martin Luther King's place at Ebenezer Baptist Church. It's pretty stark. And I know a lot of coastals think, how could they... How could people even vote for Herschel Walker, the wife beater, the, uh, you know, et cetera. But you have to understand, this is Georgia. And one of the things that's really crucial is that Georgia has spent the last couple decades figuring out how to suppress, as I say, shaft voters of color out of their vote. And that's what I've been investigating, whether it's or BBC or The Guardian, Rolling Stone, whatever. And what I've uncovered now, every year there's a new technique. And here, But this year they, they've kind of put in a special effort, and they've got two new techniques for suppressing the vote. This is very important to understand what's going on. First of all, what has not been reported in the press, in fact been misreported by, I, I won't say a newspaper's name because I won't embarrass them, but let's just say NYT and, or another radio station, NPR. Um, but I don't want to say their names. But... Um, They've said that there is a record early voting turnout. That's a lie. It's a complete fabrication, which was taken straight from the the press release of the Republican Secretary of State. In fact, are you ready for this number? In 2020, 1.2 million people cast mail-in ballots. This year, the numbers plummeted to 0.2 million. One million mail-in ballots have just gone poof. Now, that doesn't mean that someone threw them in the garbage. What happened was is that the, is that the um, sitting governor, Brian Kemp, what's happened here is that uh, Governor Brian Kemp, who is in a rematch right now as we speak with Stacey Abrams, whom he beat in what's called a controversial win in 2018 – as Stacey Abrams said, she got the most votes, but she wasn't inaugurated. And she said that to the annoyance of the Democratic Party. But she made it clear. So what's happened is, again, between 2020 and this year, 
you've had a drop of 1 million mail-in and drop box ballots. That's the result of a law signed by Brian Kemp last year called SB202. Now, the NAACP calls it Jim Crow 2.2, and it has several pretty devastating provisions aimed at cutting the vote of minority voters. First, they've made mail-in and drop box balloting, and as you get your mail-in vote, you put it in a drop box. There were 1.2 million drop box and mail-in voters, and they were overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly Democratic out of urban areas. In fact, half a million of those, over half a million of those ballots were cast in just four black majority counties around the Atlanta area. So what Brian Kemp did is said, well, if we don't like the way that that those mail-in voters vote, we'll eliminate mail-in balloting, which he did in a very uh, kind of unsubtle way. Instead of just simply saying you can't mail in your ballot, which, of course, is impossible because you have to have some type of absentee balloting. He said you have to, number one, you have to add ID when you do your um, mail-in balloting. And then another obstacle. But, okay, you can overcome that. But what's difficult to overcome is People in Georgia, especially black voters in Georgia in the urban areas, like to put their ballots in drop boxes. It isn't just a kind of preference of how you like to walk in and vote. You have to understand that in Georgia, in the urban areas, the way they've run the laws and the procedures, you will have five, seven, 11 hour waits. So one way to get around that is to bring your ballot to the, to the voting station, the voting, the government offices, they have drop boxes outside. Now, there's a camera on, a security camera in each drop box. You can't just, like, run in and just stuff the ballot. And they would put their ballots in. They've eliminated that. All the ballots were pulled away and put inside government buildings, locked away when the government buildings are closed. And they completely, there were no, even though there were lines hours long today, you could not drop your ballot in a drop box. Mm. They simply eliminated them. They eliminated souls to the polls Sunday voting this past Sunday. It didn't exist. That's when a lot of black people, especially don't have cars, take buses to the polls, souls to the polls. So they eliminated the souls to the polls Sunday, all by this law signed by Brian Kemp, SB202. So you lost one million ballots that way. Now it's true. You have an increase in in-person voting, but as one Democratic election supervisor told me for one county, said, look, how do you make up for that? You know, at a certain point, people, it's just too jammed up to even vote here. It's hard to imagine what it's like. Voting here is a contact sport, and it's difficult to do. Yeah. So that's crucial to Brian Kemp holding his job. We're at the point right now, Herschel Walker, and, and again, Herschel Walker, the Republican candidate who was uh, promoted and basically created by Donald Trump, uh, Reverend Senator Raphael War- Walker, Warnock. who won a, oh, excuse me, Warnock, who won a runoff election in January of um, 2021 by 300,000 votes, now is in a dead heat. In fact, uh, I, I think I'm looking, I'm looking at that MSNBC tape, and it's. Um, uh, Walker is actually ahead. The Republican candidate is ahead by one percentage point. Hmm. This could only happen. Now, I'm not partisan. For those who know Greg Palace, I actually take nonpartisanship quite seriously. But I believe that the voters, not the 
Jim Crow vote trickery should determine who's senator and who's governor. So you have this massive attack on the mail-in vote and the drop box vote, which is overwhelmingly, almost entirely Democratic, because, as you know, uh, Donald Trump said, don't vote by mail. Hmm. So they say, OK, the mail in voters, the drop box voters, the Democrats will just eliminate the drop box. So we'll cut back the mail in voting. Uh, the early voters and souls of polls voters are black. We'll eliminate souls of polls day. Greg, I, know, I just so, want to I just want to interrupt you just to reintroduce you sure. to a station ID. Sure. Uh, you're listening to WPCAN's uh, ongoing coverage of the 2022 midterm election. And on the line with us right now is Greg Palast, an award winning investigative journalist who's uh, been uh, uh, covering uh, voter suppression for more than 20 years in Georgia and elsewhere across the country. And Greg is reporting to us tonight from Georgia. I think Richard Hill, our co-host, has a a question for you. Greg, I I wonder if we could shift our attention to another state, to Pennsylvania. I'm curious about that Supreme Court decision which required voters to affix the date on the outside envelope of their mail-in ballots. I believe that decision, even though it's the Supreme Court, is being challenged in court by the ACLU and, and possibly other organizations. Do you have any well, updates? Let's try to take it to the – yes. Okay. So well, let me explain to voters, what, uh, to listeners, what's going on here in Pennsylvania. In Pennsylvania, as in most states, when mail-in ballots come in, you count them. These are American citizens. No one's questioning that these are legitimate ballots cast by United States citizens in Pennsylvania. But the Republicans are saying – and again, it's not like I'm – anti-Republican, but they're playing games with this. They're saying, oh, it's a gotcha game. Oh, they didn't add the, uh, they're supposed to write in the date. Now understand that ballots, thousands and thousands of ballots have been received already in Pennsylvania that were mailed in, and they didn't have the date written in, or it's not uh, often the post, usually the post office does not date stamp. They do not cancel um, the non-stamped return envelopes of mail-in ballots. So you don't get the usual post office dated stamp. But if you've received, imagine, think about this. If they received the ballot today, by definition, it was mailed on time before the election. So they're doing this new gotcha thing. Now, understand in American history, for two centuries, the Supreme Court has laid down the rule that the voter intent wins. You can't play gotcha games. You can't say, oh, you used a red pen instead of a blue pen. You can't say, oh, they, they put a check mark instead of a bubble. But since Bush v. Gore, you can now play these gotcha games. So any voter who didn't date their ballot, but it arrived today, by definition, it arrived in time to be counted. It arrived uh, before the election deadline. But the, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court has said, we don't care. If it's not dated, we don't know when it came in. Well, you do know when it came in. It's, it, <laughs> they marked when it came in. It's a new gotcha game. And this, those thousands of votes that will now be disqualified unless the U.S. Supreme Court overturns it. And good luck. Have you seen the Supreme Court lately? So <laughs> if, it's, if those ballots don't get counted, that could be the margin. So in other words, the senator... From Pennsylvania, that could determine which party controls the Senate, affects all of us. could be determined by this gotcha gimmick of, oh, they didn't date it, so we don't know if it came in before the election, except it's sitting in the election board before the election. Yeah. 
So this is the new game. And, and we see this in Georgia, too. Georgia has something called exact match. You have to sign an absentee ballot with the exact signature that you used when you first registered maybe 30 years ago. So if you registered with your middle initial in your signature and you didn't sign it with your middle initial, it's obviously still you. No one's questioning that it's a fraudulent ballot. But they're saying it doesn't count. You didn't sign it right. You didn't pat your head and rub your tummy at the same time. These are the games that are played in Georgia, Pennsylvania, Arizona, Wisconsin. I'm seeing this all over the country. Games played with ballots, the gotcha game. And, I mean, I'm not being partisan about it, but it's almost entirely, not always, I want to mention that, not always, sometimes it's Democrats, but it's lately been played mostly by the GOP. Greg, uh, I wondered if you would uh, say a word or two about your brand new documentary film, Vigilante, Georgia's Vote Suppression Hitman. I know you showed the film all across Georgia and, and, and elsewhere around the country. You premiered it recently. Uh, just tell our yes. listeners a little bit about the, the message in that documentary and what impact it may have on opening people's eyes to this game of voter suppression. Okay, so I, I made a film. Uh, vigilante, vote uh, Georgia's vote suppression hitman. Don't be fooled by the, by it being about Georgia. Uh, you know, it's it's Georgia is America. It's just ahead of us. This again, the test kitchen for these Jim Crow tactics, the new Jim Crow tactics in Georgia. Are you ready for this, Scott? Um, any Georgian can challenge the vote counting the ballot of any other Georgian, an unlimited number of challenges. Now, what does that mean? You will see in the film that there's one GOP official who personally challenged 32,000 voters in Georgia, in Cobb County, 32,000. And you'll see in the film, I meet with her. I, I end up confronting her. I show her the names of the people. I show her pictures. I even got one on the phone. And said, do you know this woman? No. Did you call her? No. Do you know where she lives? No. But you challenged her right to vote. You challenged 32,000 people's right to vote. I said, did you call any of them? She says, I can't call 32,000 people. But you challenged her right to vote. Um, and then she uh, chased me out of her house, told me to leave. And I wasn't going to argue because um, she had a shotgun there. She had ammo and guns literally stacked to the ceiling. This is understand she was running for vice chair of the Republican Party. Another chairman of the Republican Party in southern Georgia challenged, personally challenged 4,000 voters, including, and you'll see in the film Vigilante, including Major Gamaliel Turner, a career military officer, 69 years old, who was assigned by the President of the United States, by our commander-in-chief, to... Uh, Port Wainimi in California. So he was assigned to a military base, and the Republican Party challenged his vote, saying he's not a Georgian. He lived his whole life in Georgia. His home's in Georgia. His father was a co-founder with King and Abernathy of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. They planned the voting rights movement at this guy's dining room table, and his ballot was challenged. With 4,000 others, they're challenging black soldiers if they're assigned somewhere else. Now, yes, Georgia is on the leading edge of these horrific Jim Crow tactics, but we know at least 10 states 
that are imitating the Georgia vigilante system of this vigilante voter challenge. 100, I have on my website at gregpals.com, 149,000 Georgians have been challenged by these non-governmental officials. And the government officials are pretty bad, too. You know, we've had to sue them. I worked with the ACLU, or Black Voters Matter, and others. We sued the state for removing illegally 300,000 black voters, saying that they didn't live in Georgia. And I got Google. You know, they, they know where you live. I got Google to check each and every address with their computers. They said, listen, uh, these people uh, live exactly where they registered. Their crime is voting while black. So these are the games being played. So you, you want to see this film because, look, it's a film. And, and I have to say, for the next couple of days, you can watch it for Oh, I lost you there, Greg. Greg? Thank you. You can watch the film for free, care of uh, Jamie Foxx, who put up the money to do this, at VigilanteMovie.com. VigilanteMovie.com for the next two days. You can see that film for free. It is a movie. I mean, you can, you know, you didn't pay for your popcorn. It's, you know, there's it's being chased uh, out of someone's house with a shotgun. can be funny if you don't get actually get shot. Yeah. And you have to understand, one of these vigil, this vigilante, who is, by the way, a chairman of the Republican Party, he actually dresses like a vigilante with cowboy hat, boots, and six-gun, pearl-handled six-gun, which he guaranteed me was loaded. Hmm. These are the people, and he challenged 4,000 voters, targeting especially African-American soldiers hmm. who were assigned outside of Georgia. Amazing. Greg, this is what's going on. Your, import, your reporting on voter suppression all these years has been so important, and I know we'll be talking again soon on the air yes. uh, on on the solution side of things that uh, we always we always uh, try to approach. But I know many people are more alert about this because of your work all across the country. Thank you for joining us. And just by way of information from Georgia, I'm seeing that uh, CNN has uh, projected that Brian Kemp is the winner of the governor's race there in Georgia tonight. Yeah, not counting one million mail-in ballots that have disappeared, 149,000 voters challenged by vigilantes. That's what's not reported, and I'm glad, and I hope people recognize the value of, of what you're doing it, between the lines. It's what you don't read, the real story. Yes, Brian Kemp's going to take this, as he did in 2018 when Stacey Abrams said, I had the most votes, the most voters, but I won't be inaugurated. And we're seeing the repetition mm. of that tonight. Yeah. And again, it's not whether you're for against Brian Kemp or Stacey Abrams. What are your four against democracy? So Absolutely. go to vigilantemovie.com, catch the movie for free for the next couple of days. And I thank you for giving me the opportunity to kind of do this reporting, which is very uncomfortable for most Americans. Absolutely. Thanks, Greg. We'll, we'll be back in touch with you shortly. Thank you. You're welcome. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. That's Greg Palast, an award-winning investigative journalist uh, who's been covering voter suppression for a couple of decades. But right now, we want to welcome to our election coverage, WPKN's alternative election coverage, Michael Zweig. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it's good to be with you. Yeah, Michael is an economist. He's a labor historian, a union activist, and a professor emeritus at the State University of New York at Stony Brook. He is uh, also the author of 
numerous books and articles, but the books that are very relevant to probably the conversation we're going to have tonight, The Working Class Majority, America's Best Kept Secret is one, and another, What's Class Got to Do With It? Wonderful titles and important work there, Michael Zweig. So thank you so much for being with us again here at WPKN. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you, and it's an important night to think about. Absolutely. Well, I'll just ask the first question to get us started. So tell us a little bit about the role that labor played in, I guess, mobilizing support for progressive ideas and candidates in this election. And to what extent have they been, oh, I don't know, either supported and drawn more deeply into the fold of the national democratic establishment? Well, the the trade union movement in the United States has always, uh, in recent decades, been focused on elections and uh, making contributions and mobilizing members to go out and vote members to go out and campaign, to uh, phone bank, to do all the things that uh, can help to determine the outcome of an election. The uh, labor movement is quite diverse. It's shrinking in the relations of the total population. But it's still 12 or 13 or 14 million people who are members of unions. So when unions make a commitment to support a candidate and then try to mobilize their members to engage in the electoral process, it can be very significant. And I think we've seen that in uh, this election. We don't know yet exactly how it's going to go in Nevada, uh, where the uh, Culinary Workers Union has been very, very uh, strong in their political uh, uh, participation. Um, In New York, where I am, uh, the uh, labor movement was very active in supporting uh, Kathy Hochul and uh, Lieutenant Governor Delgado, and uh, it seems that that has paid off in a victory for Hochul. Um, So the labor movement has been very deeply involved. But it's also diverse in its political orientation. Most of the labor movement is kind of center-left within the Democratic Party. It's not Ocasio-Cortez. It's not uh, Jamal Bowman. It's a very much centrist uh, part of the Democratic Party. Uh, And that is winning tonight, uh, it seems, around the country. So that's interesting to observe. So that's, you know, in a nutshell, where the labor movement is these days. Michael, you mentioned the labor movement is diverse. It is also very ethnically diverse. How does the labor movement, the different sectors of it, confront the issue of immigration in this country? For example, many people coming in, tens of thousands of people waiting for the right to work in this country. They have years to wait before they will be seen by an immigration judge. And during that time, they really are not allowed to work. Many of them are going to be undocumented workers. Do you have any general statement you can make about labor's attitude toward that situation? Well, the trade union movement in the United States traditionally, uh, until around the year 2000, was quite hostile to uh, immigrant labor, saw immigration waves as being uh, threatening to their jobs, threatening to their uh, political hold because they might have different 
uh, views uh, and not be familiar with American politics. So uh, the labor movement, uh, generally speaking, until around the year 2000, uh, was quite anti-immigrant. Uh, now, there were unions that were exceptions to that, for sure, uh, United Electrical Workers and other unions that were uh, much more open to uh, recognizing the rights of uh, and the importance of including immigrant labor in the fold of labor as a whole. In 2000, the AFL-CIO changed its outlook, and they made a conscious decision and a public decision that they were going to, as a labor movement, embrace immigrant labor and find that immigrant labor is part of labor as a whole and not a threat. So the official labor movement of the AFL-CIO and the main unions that it that compose it uh, became more sympathetic to the needs and to the rights and to the interests of immigrant labor, including uh, undocumented immigrants. The problem is that uh, a, a lot of union members don't have that same view. The, the union membership, labor union uh, members from different uh, uh, professions, different occupations, do have uh, anti-immigrant views still. And the labor movement has tried to uh, address that, the leadership in their political education, in their publications, in their uh, work uh, on the ground. But uh, it's still the case that, uh, you know, quite a number of uh, union members um, uh, particularly in some of the tr more traditional building trades, uh, are still quite suspicious of immigrant labor. Are undocumented workers, can they become members of unions? Oh, yes. There's no uh, need to show your papers, you know, or show that you're legal to be a member of a union or to be represented by the union or even to be a union official. Uh, there's no union that I know of that has a uh, requirement uh, that you have to be a citizen or that you have to be uh, legally in the country. I don't, that's not a question. Well, I want to turn to one other topic. So I wanted to ask you about this surge of new new unions being formed around the country in Starbucks and even uh, Amazon warehouses, or at least one. <laughs> and I think that some of the, many of the pharmacy chains are starting to feel the uh, rumble of union activism. Talk about that and, and what, what it means for the labor movement in general, but also just the well-being of the American workforce. I think that what we're seeing in some of these new upsurges is the role of young workers newly entering into the labor market, newly entering into uh, trying to earn a living and finding that it's difficult and finding that uh, there is a need for collective action. And some of the younger workers are ready to act and ready to organize uh, because they feel the pressure of everyday life on the job requires them to do that. Uh, traditional legacy labor unions have been slow to uh, support all of, all, of, all of those young operators. But service employees uh, has been out there working. Uh, retail workers uh, are 
WDSU has been very much involved also with the uh, Amazon campaign. So the energy that's coming from some of these young workers is an energy that comes from just sheer necessity and also a sense among young people that really collective action is appropriate. That's something which is a very, very important sort of first step towards unionization is the recognition that you are not alone. You can't solve these problems on your own. You have to have collective action. You have to have cooperation among the workers in the plant or in the shop or in in the uh, Starbucks store. And I think that young people are coming to recognize that out of the necessity of their of their lives. Michael, thank you so much for joining us and, uh, you know, really focusing attention on labor, which is a real weakness in our corporate media, whether we're talking about elections or the challenges of every day at work and inflation and all the rest. I wanted to ask you a question about the rise of this uh, neo-fascism within the uh, Republican Party and these extremists, these white supremacist groups, these armed militia groups, which are aligned with the Republican Party. And, you know, my reading of history, and you know it far better than I do, uh, labor has always been at the forefront um, of fighting and, and challenging these fascist and racist movements. And as you look at uh, the current environment in the United States, Uh, What do you see labor's role being now with the rise of this fascist element within America's uh, one of one of the uh, major parties in the United States in the Republican Party? One of the implications of that rise is not only the violence that everybody's uh, focused on in the uh, January 6th thing and then the armed militias guarding the ballot boxes, supposedly guarding them down in uh, Arizona. There's a tendency to look at, at that as what these fascists represent, and they do represent that. But they also represent a fierce anti-labor policy structure. These are people who want to destroy unions. These are people who want to give full play to corporate power in the workplace and in the political process. So the idea that these sort of neo-fascists are really working class uh, populists is a big mistake. And the labor movement in challenging corporate power in the shop floor, in the political process, comes face-to-face with the, with the same political forces that are providing the funds and the overall uh, architecture for this neo-fascist movement. So I think that well, even though the labor movement, the official labor movement, is small relative to the uh, labor force as a whole, historically, back to the level of where it was 100 years ago, uh, what of what there is of the labor movement is, I think, going to be very strongly in the anti-fascist camp. I don't think there's any question about that. Now, whether they can address some of their members who are in that sort of fascist or neo-fascist or white supremacist uh, you know circles in this country, well, that's a debate that has to take place among the workers themselves 
And that's a debate that, um, you know, I'm involved with and a lot of other people in order to confront, in order to bring away from that fascist outlook and the false consciousness, the false understanding that it represents when workers pick it up. Mm-hmm. That's the struggle that we have to do, and I think that we're down for it. Well said, Michael. I wanted to ask you one more question before we have to move on, and that is that you know there was almost sense of exuberance and almost like a renaissance of New Deal sensibilities and energies that occurred when Joe Biden was elected and there was a very strong progressive caucus in the House that was proposing a lot of very progressive legislation, which eventually, I should say, immediately stalled when it hit the filibuster in the Senate. And one of those proposals, one of those acts that passed in the House and died in the Senate was the PRO Act, the Protect the Right to Organize Act. To what extent do you think this could and should play a role in future electoral battles? The PRO Act was a very important piece of legislation, uh, as you say, to protect the right to organize, uh, in order to provide the institutional structure and the institutional arrangements that would make it easier for workers to actually have the unions that they want. If you ask people in the United States, what's your attitude towards unions? Do you want to be in a union? Well, something like 60% of people say yes, but only 12% are in unions. So how do you explain that 60% say they want to be in, but only 12% are? Only 20% of people in the country who want to be in a union are in one. 80% are not. That is explained only by corporate hostility to organizing and the ability of corporations to crush organizing campaigns before they even get to a point where you can even hope for an election. So I think that the things like the PRO Act are going to be extremely important uh, legislative goals. And it's not just because we like unions. It's because in order to confront capital, in order to confront to confront corporate power, you need the power of labor. The corporations know that. The corporate leaders know that. That's why they're out to destroy unions. And if they can do that in a way that demagogues black people or demagogues Jews or demagogues labor itself, all the more that it has to be resisted, all the more that the, that the labor movement has to find ways to get to the power that it needs. Now, within the Democratic Party, which, you know, you were talking about the, the, the sort of progressive wing, the progressive wing is very tenuous in the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party is not a progressive party. Its leadership and its structure is dedicated to the marginalization of those uh, progressive elements. And we saw it most recently, actually, on the issue of Ukraine. Because the Progressive Caucus had circulated a letter to the Biden administration asking for negotiations with Russia to go parallel on a parallel track with the actual provision of military spending and provision of military hardware to the Ukrainian uh, struggle against uh, Russia. Well, when that got public, that there was even the hint of negotiation 
that the U.S. should be part of. That was what the Progressive Caucus was doing. There was such a backlash within the Democratic Party leadership that the Progressive Caucus leadership withdrew that request for negotiation. Well, that just was a, a, a very stark reminder that within the Democratic Party, uh, even though they can pass the pro-legislation in the House, they also knew when they were voting for it in the House that it wasn't going to pass in the Senate. So it was a safe vote in the House for moderate Republicans, uh, moderate Democrats. The Democratic Party is not a progressive party. The working class needs its own political representation in alliance with the women's movement, alliance with the environmental movement, alliance with the Black Lives Matter movement, the race, uh, racial equality, gender equality movements. All that has to be brought together into one collective force within the Democratic Party to challenge the power of corporate influence in the Democratic Party. And that we're a long way from having that uh, capacity. And that seems to me to be the uh, longer-term agenda, political agenda, of the, dem- uh, of the labor movement uh, that it needs to adopt in confronting corporate power in this country. Well, Michael Zweig, once again, some trenchant analysis and conversation coming to us over WPKN. We really appreciate the work that you do and the uh, wisdom that you're able to bring to our airwaves. Well, thank you very much. Thanks for the opportunity. Uh, Thanks for the conversation. Absolutely. We'll talk to you again soon. I hope so. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Michael. Yep. That's Michael Zweig. He's uh, an economist, a labor historian, union activist, and professor emeritus at State University of New York at Stony Brook, joining us here on our election night coverage. And we have a special interview coming up in just a moment or two. Uh, Bob Johnson is trying to get our next guest on the line. That is Livia Ponzio, who is an Italian-born documentary researcher who will be joining us momentarily. So uh, Livia, I know, has been glued to the U.S. TV, but let me give you a little bit of an introduction, Livia. She's an Italian-born documentary researcher and producer. And since the Russian invasion of Ukraine, she's worked alongside international academics and journalists to help stop the spread of disinformation. She spent most of her career in the Netherlands. And while at the University of Utrecht, she specialized in how the Third Reich used the media to spread Nazi propaganda. Welcome, Livia. We've talked before the Italian elections. Uh, We talked right around after the Italian elections. What's going on in Italy with the, the new fascist government? They're sort of like outright fascists or fascist light or neo-fascist? What do you, what do you want to, how do you want to characterize them? Yeah, well, I'll, I'll personally characterize it as um, post-fascist, uh, as some uh, historians are characterizing them. And um, it's, it's going, let's say, on the international level, uh, it's going... So far, pretty well in the sense that they are not doing too much damage to the uh, um, alliance of uh, NATO and the European Committee, mainly because the government needs European money <clears throat> to not, um, uh, let's say, to not default because there is this great, you know, financial crisis. Um, you know, uh, uh, 
uh, coming in 2023, as experts point out. So Giorgia Meloni needs to have the full support of the European Committee. So she went actually a few days ago to Brussels. Uh, she had a good conversation with the, the European Committee president, Roberta Metzola, and so on and so on. On that on that front, NATO and uh, Europe and, uh, and you know, um, support to Ukraine, it seems to be, um, let's say, to be in continuity with the, the uh, previous uh, Mario Draghi government. But what we are living through now is that there is a revamped, uh, re-engineered um, migrants crisis so we just have a uh, we just had actually it was not sold but it was like uh, you know it found like a temporary solution um, I think two days just a few hours ago uh, a situation with a with a, 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 a NGO boat with migrants on board so. Uh, the the way they behaved towards this NGO is exactly the same uh, as in the previous far right government before Mario Draghi's. Actually, the the what we call Conte Uno, the first Conte government, which was um, which had um, Matteo Salvini of the League in the majority. So again. Uh, uh, NGOs are treated as uh, outlaws and um, boats full of uh, African migrants are illegally stopped uh, uh, at sea and they don't let them disembark the, the, the people that they have on board. So it's, it's like it's, um, uh, it's a strange passage, let's say, on, on the international level, they need to keep, uh, you know, they need to keep faith and they need to keep the continuity with previous Draghi government. But on the particular far-right issues of immigration, they are behaving like a post-fascist uh, government as they did in the past. So um, it's something we'll that see unites. It's something that unites all of the extreme right wing is to scapegoat immigrants, and it happens in this country. Now, you've been yes. watching the election results uh, in Europe. Uh, what, yeah. Do you get a sense as to how the European community will react once the House has been uh, taken over by the Republican Party? Yeah, I think that like Europe is, in a way... Fearing the the flip of the house, mm. and variably all European countries are uh, watching at the United States uh, new balance of power in the house with um, a kind of a little worry. They are very aware, and this happens. This is clear also from how they've been commenting the the midterms so far on TVs and radios, mainly all over Europe, they are really aware that uh, if the House and the Senate, they flip red, they go to the Republicans, we are looking at uh, two years ahead of a stalled situation in the United States, meaning that we are very aware that 
Joe Biden will not be put in the condition and in the in in, in the condition of keep on you know for instance supporting Ukraine or leading NATO the way he has been leading NATO so far having mm. this role of compacting the uh, the the alliance you know backing backing Ukraine and therefore preventing um, Russia to uh, be emboldened uh, mm. uh, in Ukraine and and hope for you know, a, a better position on the Ukraine fields, on the Ukraine battlefields. Mm. And in fact, actually, I've been following, because as you know, I followed this information. I've been following also what was going on on Russian national TV today. And it seems that they have been talking also a lot about the midterms. And they understand very mm. well that if they get a Republican majority, both in the House and in the Senate, they will be able to uh, get the breather that they need. So R- Russia now needs to, uh, let's say, needs a break. So you think the Russians would hope that with a Republican takeover of the House, that the support for Ukraine would uh, wane and yeah. there would be cutbacks into the kinds of military supplies and support from the yeah. U.S. would be That's exactly down. what they are like mm. saying uh, out loud, not even pretending anymore mm. on on the Russian TV. On the other on the other hand, for instance, on French and Italian TV, they, as I told you, they are very aware that what it means to have a a Republican controlled. Um, control government, you know, House and Senate for the Biden presidency. But in Italy especially, but also in France, they have bought into the disinformation about Biden's state of mind. So in this few days leading up to the midterms to today, they have been talking a lot about Biden in terms of a tired president, an old president, a president that that is not always like talking uh, clearly mm. in the sense that, you know, they believe there is information that has it, especially Europe, about the mental state of President Biden. That might have, maybe I told you before this. Yeah. So, uh, um, I don't mean to interrupt you, but, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're running short on time and I wanted to okay. uh, let my co-hosts jump in here with a question, uh, Richard or Scott. Uh, or even Asia, if you're on the line, do you have a question, uh, Richard Scott? Uh, yeah, I, I could just ask uh, Livia. Thank you for joining us from Italy. I know it was like something like 5:45 in the morning. There. <laughs> She's been up all night. Nobody did. We much appreciate okay, you yes, doing uh, that. Me too. And it's like it's uh, 5:30 in Italy. Oh well, almost six o'clock. Yeah. yeah. Just, I just wanted to ask you, what is the resistance to the new fascist government in Italy like? I, well, the reaction in Italy, there is like the situation we have now in Italy is that we have a very strong far right and we have, a, a, let's say, a fragmented left front. Um, and the fragmented left front has been on full display the other day. Uh, there were like two uh, events organized, one in Rome and one in Milano. Uh, for the peace in Ukraine. One was uh, fully in Rome, uh, Russian propaganda-led. So they uh, want, basically, they, the, the message is, we want peace, so stop 
supporting Ukraine militarily, so peace will come, as if you don't arm Ukraine, um, you know, Putin will automatically stop bombing them, but that's probably obviously not the case. And then the other event in Milano, in the in the public squares, to support in support of Ukraine, in support of peace, supporting Ukraine. And the leader of the left coalition decided to go to the Rome event, to the to the, the event more informed by Russian propaganda, and he was very heavily contested. At the moment in Italy, in short, it seems that the fragmented from the election we had a fragmented left that um, has still to find their bearings. And the, the the real resistance towards the new government is the dependence that Meloni has uh, from European Commission money. So there is pushback from the, the minority groups, especially uh, LGBTQ community, people that work in uh, organization uh, to, um, you know, that support, uh, you know, migrants in the country, those are the most disadvantaged and historically the most the, the most targeted group by the far right. But as for the resistance from the left, at the moment there is a, you know, a, a rather disorganized front and, and horizon, which, you know, brings some worries. Livia Ponzio, thank you so much for speaking with us today on our special election night coverage. Bye, Asia. Bye. Bye-bye. Great to have Livia with us tonight to get that breadth of European perspective into our coverage tonight. We should uh, just say our goodbyes and our thank yous to all the people that helped to do this production, starting with Hazel Kahn, John Iannucci, who, of course, provided coverage of Connecticut for us tonight. Ebonga Odama, and am I forgetting anybody, Scott? Well, we want to certainly thank, as I know you were just about to, Emma Primes, mm-hmm. Asia Hussein, Bob Johnson, and you, Richard Hill, for spending a lot of time organizing tonight's four-hour broadcast. Appreciate it. Yeah, Scott Harris, once again, picking up the pieces <laughs> left by some of my uh, blunders here with the phone system. Thank you so much for that. And, of course, Scott one of our treasures here at WPKN in terms of public affairs production. And uh, we'll look forward to more of his wonderful programs coming down the pike. Thanks again, everybody. This has been WPKN's Alternative Election Coverage 2022. Whatever happens tonight, remember, the struggle continues.